Hello everyone and welcome to the March 21st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. In the en banc decision of Jose Guitan versus Santa Fe Extruders, the appeals board held that the employer is required to provide reasonable interpreter services during medical treatment appointments for an injured worker who is unable to speak, understand, or communicate in English. And the interpreter lien claimant has the burden of proving, among other things, that the services it provided were reasonably required, that the services were actually provided, that the interpreter was qualified to provide the services, and that the fees charged were reasonable. The state fund argued unsuccessfully that interpreter fees are allowable only in connection with medical legal expenses or evaluations and not in connection with treatment. SCIF reviewed the various statutes and regulations authorizing interpreter services and pointed out that none of them authorizes interpreter services at medical appointments for treatment. <clears throat> The workers' comp judge noted that there is no binding case authority on this issue, and the issue is of great importance in Southern California. The Los Angeles District Office alone receives approximately 700 interpreter liens per month, the majority of which are for services related to medical treatment. After a careful review of all statutes and regulations governing interpreter services, the WCAB agreed that there are no cases directly applicable to interpreters used for medical treatment. Nonetheless, the WCAB concluded that the employer's obligation under Section 4600 of the Labor Code to provide medical treatment also requires the employer to provide reasonably required interpreter services when needed for medical treatment. Section 4600 has been construed by several cases to include the costs of transportation to obtain treatment and medication, even though such transportation costs also are not specifically listed in Section 4600. Following this reasoning, the WCAB said, effective communication between an injured employee and a medical provider is an essential adjunct to treatment similar to the obligation to provide transportation. The WCAB added that this does not mean that interpreter liens are automatically payable. Interpreter lien claimants have the burden of proving their right to payment. For example, if an injured worker used an interpreter but did not need one, the defendant would not be obligated to pay for the interpreter services. Another WCAB panel decision held that reports by treating physicians who are outside the employer's MPN without a proper referral are not admissible into evidence. Here's what happened in the case of Terry Scooter versus Verizon California Incorporated. Scooter was employed as a cable splicer when he sustained an industrial injury to his left knee, deep vein thrombosis, and low back. At the time, the employer established a medical provider network. However, applicant pre-designated Dr. Eric Feldman as his treating physician. Therefore, he was not required to treat within the MPN. After he saw Dr. Feldman twice, Feldman referred him to Douglas Jackson, MD, who continued to treat him and referred him to Stanley Modger, MD, for treatment of his deep vein thrombosis. He was then examined by Manuel Anol, MD, as a PQME. After the evaluation by the PQME, applicant retained counsel. 
It appears that his counsel then designated Philip Sobol, MD, as his primary treating physician. Dr. Sobol then referred applicant to Arthur Lipper, MD, for further treatment. The admissibility of the medical reports from Drs. Sobol and Dr. Lipper were raised as an issue at trial. The workers' comp judge issued an F&A, which found that applicant was entitled to reimbursement for the self-procured treatment with Drs. Sobol and Lipper, and their reports were admitted into evidence. The employer filed a petition for reconsideration, arguing that only a pre-designated physician can refer an injured employee to another physician outside an MPN for treatment. The WCAB agreed and granted reconsideration. Section 4600D6 provides in relevant part that an employee shall be entitled to referrals by the personal physician to other physicians or medical providers within the non-occupational health care plan. In this case, Dr. Feldman, the pre-designated physician, did not refer him to Dr. Sobel or Dr. Lipper. His attorney made the referral. Therefore, the referral was not valid under Section 4600D6. Thus, Drs. Sobel and Lipper cannot be treating physicians. Their reports are not admissible into evidence. Another WCAB decision found that a DOR can be a timely petition to reopen a case within the five-year jurisdictional time limit. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Tammy Helms v. El Cajon Ford. Applicant filed a DOR for an expedited hearing on the issues of medical treatment and temporary disability within five years of the date of injury. She claimed that her primary treating physician had requested authorization for surgery and that this authorization was granted, but she was not being paid temporary disability pending the surgery. Applicant did not, however, file a former petition to reopen the prior award. The WCAB noted that if the judge is determining previously unadjudicated issues, it may award temporary disability indemnity more than five years after the date of injury, even if no timely petition for new and further disability or petition to reopen has been filed. This was not the case here. Prior to this DOR, there had been a prior award of periods of temporary disability. Generally, where the issue of temporary disability has been previously adjudicated and an award made, the WCAB may award additional temporary disability indemnity more than five years after the date of injury only if a timely petition for new and further disability or petition to reopen was filed. Nonetheless, it is the policy of the law to favor, whenever possible, a hearing on the merits. This is particularly true in workers' compensation case where there is a constitutional mandate to accomplish substantial justice in all cases. In workers' compensation proceedings, it is settled law that pleadings may be informal, that claims should be adjudicated based on substance rather than form, and pleadings should be liberally construed so as not to defeat or undermine an injured employee's right to make a claim. Using these legal principles, the WCAB held that the expedited DOR was sufficient to constitute a timely petition for new and further disability and or a petition to reopen. And now our fraud report. Emily Hegner, who worked for the Department of Public Health, claimed she injured her low back, left hip, and right wrist while working at Laguna Honda Hospital. 
She reported pain and difficulty walking distances and claimed she needed to use a cane and wrist splint due to the work-related injury. At the same time, she completed and competed in a daunting seven-mile foot race in the Marin Headlands. And it was no easy run. The seven-mile race was one of three events offered during the annual Muir Woods Marathon. It has runners scaling the notoriously challenging Dipsy Trail. The seven-mile course, starting at Stinson Beach, climbs steadily to reach 1,800 feet within the first three miles. According to race results, Hegner finished 12th in her age group and 132nd out of 176th overall. Six days after the race, she allegedly visited her doctor while using her cane and requested a handicap placard. Hegner is now facing 10 felony charges, including five counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud and one count of grand theft and faces a maximum of nine years, eight months in state prison if convicted. She posted $120,000 bail and was released from custody pending trial. Jerry Brewer, the last remaining defendant in a workers' compensation scam that prosecutors claim cost workers across the country $100 million, has been sentenced to 15 years in prison and ordered to pay $373,000 in restitution. Prosecutors had sought a 25-year sentence for the former California insurance broker. Brewer was originally from Capistrano Beach, California. He was for a while a fugitive in England and the last remaining defendant in the case. The 16 defendants, all businessmen and doctors, ran employee leasing companies that handled payroll and other employment functions for small business owners. The fraud occurred when they collected premiums for sham workers' compensation insurance. The fake insurance left thousands of employees without workers' comp insurance coverage. Brewer was believed to be the ringleader. In addition to Brewer, 13 defendants were sentenced to terms ranging from 2 to 22 years. One committed suicide before his sentencing and another died of a heart attack while under investigation. And now our medical report. The nonpartisan U.S. Government Accountability Office found that the usual and customary price index for the top 100 commonly used drugs increased by an annual average of 6.6% from 2006 through the first quarter of 2010. At the same time, there was only a 3.8% average annual increase in the consumer price index for medical goods and services in general. The basket of drugs reviewed in the study contained 55 brand name medicines and 45 generic drugs. Prices for the brand name drugs rose by an annual average of 8.3%, while prices for the generics fell by 2.6% annually. Prescription drug spending in 2009 totaled approximately $250 billion, of which $78 billion, or about 31%, was spent by the federal government. The report should be a cause for concern for the California workers' comp community. Workers' compensation medical costs in California are estimated to be increasing at the rate of 16% per year, an increase that outstrips medical cost increases elsewhere and in other systems. This increase is despite the implementation of layers of medical cost containment tools adopted in 2004 by SB 899. 
And a new study claims that $4 drug programs could save billions if they were used more frequently. A growing number of national chain pharmacies offer the generic form of a range of drugs for $4 for a 30-day supply. However, researchers found that less than 6% of people who could use such a program take advantage of it. Researchers claim that these programs could save the U.S. as much as $5.8 billion. The lead author of the study from the University of Pittsburgh thinks that a lot of people just do not know about these programs. One goal of healthcare reform has been to save money by encouraging the use of generic drugs when they are available. The president of health and wellness at Walmart noted that the study does point to the need for more people to consider using lower-cost generics. There are still many Americans today who are on pharmaceuticals who don't realize that they could save money if they look for a $4 prescription program. There's really no excuse now for people to be spending so much more than they need to for the medications that they need to stay healthy. The authors are careful to say that they are not attempting to promote Walmart or any other specific pharmacy. Researchers said that more doctors should be talking to their patients about the possibility of getting their medications through one of these programs. And in regulatory news, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued a new guide for small construction firms on how to comply with safety rules involving cranes and derricks. OSHA published a new rule to address the number of workers' injuries and deaths associated with the use of cranes and derricks in construction. The rule also addresses technological advances in equipment since the old rule was issued in 1971. OSHA officials said that over the past four decades there has been a significant number of worker injuries and deaths from electrocution, crushed by and struck by hazards while performing cranes and derrick operations. This guide will help employers understand what they must do to protect their workers from these dangerous, sometimes fatal incidents. Significant requirements in this new rule include inspections of tower crane parts, use of synthetic slings in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions during assembly and disassembly work, assessment of ground conditions, and procedures for working in the vicinity of power lines. The rule requires operators of most types of cranes to be qualified or certified. Employers have up to four years to ensure that their operators are qualified or certified unless they are operating in a state or city that has operator requirements. This guide accompanies other OSHA compliance materials on crane-related topics available on the agency's website. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please check back again next week for some more news.